Hello, welcome to the 10th and final episode in the Essex Court Chamber's 10 in 10 podcast series. This week, I am joined by David Joseph QC and Toby Landau QC, who were both involved in the recent Supreme Court decision of Enker and Chubb. This is a case that concerns the grant of anti-suit injunctions in relation to foreign proceedings in support of English arbitration. David Joseph is a senior Silicon Chambers with an extensive offshore practice, including many cases in Singapore. He is the author, as many of you will know, of Joseph on jurisdiction and arbitration agreements and their enforcement, now in its third edition, as well as co-author of Singapore International Arbitration Law and Practice, now in its second edition. The legal directories describe him as a formidable practitioner with encyclopedic knowledge of arbitration law and a compelling presence. Toby Landau is synonymous with international arbitration. He practices out of Essex Court Chambers in London and Essex Court Chambers Duxton in Singapore. He's the first Queen's Counsel to be permanently called to the Singapore Bar and has since 2012 been a member of the panel of advisors to the Attorney General of Singapore. He is described in the legal directories as an outstanding advocate with wonderful judgment and an amazing ability to read tribunals. He's also one of the market's most popular arbitrators. I'm delighted to be joined by both David and Toby to discuss the case of Enker and Chubb, in which they were both brought in as advocates on opposing sides in the Supreme Court. Toby, perhaps I can start by just asking you to describe the background to this case. Thank you very much. The facts of the case can be stated quite simply. The claimant, Enker, was a Turkish engineering company and a subcontractor in the construction of a power plant in Russia. The construction contract to which it was a party uh, was in Russian and English versions. A mammoth 97-page contract with 400 pages of attachments and great detail. It provided that specified provisions in it were either governed by or to be performed in compliance with Russian law. But as was found uh, by the Supreme Court, there was no express choice of Russian law for the overall contract. The contract included an ICC arbitration agreement. London was the specified seat, but there was no express choice of law for that arbitration agreement. In terms of the relevant events, there was a catastrophic fire at the power plant. The first defendant, that's Chubb, a Russian insurer, paid an insurance claim made by the owner and was then subrogated to the owner's rights against the claimant, Enker. Chubb brought a claim against Enker before a Russian court seeking damages for losses arising from certain defects. And then there were two sets of proceedings, Russian proceedings and English proceedings. In the Russian proceedings, uh, Enker filed a motion uh, before the Russian court to dismiss the proceedings in accordance with Article 2.3 of the New York Convention, that is, because there was an arbitration agreement. Uh, In the Russian proceedings, that issue was joined by the Russian judge to the merits, and ultimately, at first instance, uh, Chubb's claim was dismissed on the merits. And both those determinations, actually, which was a refusal to dismiss in favour of arbitration, uh, and the dismissal of the merits was then subject to an appeal. Switching then to the English proceedings, uh, Enger brought a claim in England for an anti-suit injunction to restrain Chubb from pursuing the Russian claim 
on the basis that it constituted a breach of the arbitration agreement. And in response to that, Chubb contended that Russian law applied to both the main contract and the arbitration agreement, and that there was a good arguable case that the Russian claim fell outside the scope of the arbitration agreement, and therefore there was a basis to resist the anti-suit injunction application. At first instance, uh, before Mr. Justice Andrew Baker in the High Court, uh, the anti-suit injunction application was dismissed on the grounds that the appropriate forum to determine the scope of the arbitration agreement was the Russian court. There was no decision at first instance as to what law governs the arbitration agreement. The Court of Appeal then reversed that decision and they held that if there's no choice of law governing the arbitration agreement itself, there is a strong presumption that the parties had impliedly chosen the law of the seat of the arbitration to govern the arbitration agreement. So in this case, because London was chosen for the ICC arbitration, that meant English law as the law of the seat would govern the arbitration agreement. And in the circumstances, uh, Russian law and what it might have said about the scope of the arbitration agreement was not relevant. And the Court of Appeal held it was appropriate to grant an anti-suit injunction to restrain Chubb from pursuing the Russian claim. And that's the decision that Chubb then appealed to the Supreme Court. And the appeal to the Supreme Court was on an expedited basis. Uh, David Joseph was brought in to the council team on behalf of the respondent, the injunction claimant, Enka, and Toby was brought in as part of the council team for the appellant, the injunction defendant, Chubb. Toby, what were the issues before the Supreme Court? There were two core issues before the Supreme Court. Firstly, how to determine the law that applies to an arbitration agreement in circumstances where that agreement uh, contains no express choice. And secondly, what is the approach to the granting of an anti-suit injunction if an arbitration agreement is not governed by English law, but by a foreign law? Just to focus a little bit on each of those issues, in terms of the question of what law governs an arbitration agreement, one has to bear in mind that any arbitration will be governed by a number of separate systems of law. In particular, there will be three separate considerations. That is the law governing the merits, the law governing the arbitration process itself, which is often referred to as the curial law, and thirdly, the law that governs the arbitration agreement on the basis that an arbitration agreement constitutes a separate contract, even if it's a clause embedded in a main contract. And the key point uh, before the Supreme Court is what is the approach if the law governing the main contract is different to the law of the seat? So in, in short, you have an arbitration agreement that doesn't tell you what law governs it. Do you then look to the law that governs the main contract or do you look to the law of the seat that has been chosen? And that is a question which has divided courts and commentators throughout the world for some time. We have a body of English cases that take the so-called main contract approach, uh, such as, for example, Sul America and Inessa. And we have a body of cases that takes a seat approach, for example, C versus D in 2007. This is a very, very important question, because if you consider the arbitration agreement as a separate contract, then its governing law, like the governing law of any other contract, will dictate its validity, its interpretation, 
its scope, its parties, and many other juridical characteristics such as its assignability, or what happens if one party dies, etc. Uh, and, and so that obviously is a, it's a very, very important question, but actually in most cases arbitration agreements do not include an express choice of law. On the second issue before the Supreme Court, this concerned the approach to the grant of anti-suit injunctions. Uh, this is a very, very important weapon uh, available to the English court as a supervising court for England-based arbitrations. Uh, it is very regularly used. It is a great comfort to parties who are caught up in litigation abroad, uh, which is in breach of an arbitration agreement. But the question is, is the approach of the English court, should it be different if the law governing arbitration agreement is not English law? So, for example, in this case, the question was put, should the English court proceed to rule upon whether or not an arbitration agreement has been breached by foreign proceedings if that question is governed by Russian law and is live before a Russian court? Thank you for that background, Toby, and for that summary of the issues in the case. David, perhaps we can turn to the main issue, the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Toby. So the first question about the governing law of the arbitration agreement, why, why was it important? Um, because the remedy of anti-suit injunction that was being sought by ENCA was itself uh, significantly dependent upon the arbitration agreement being governed by English law and not Russian law. Why was this? It's because um, the claims that have been framed in Russia were framed essentially in tort and not in contract. There also were claims which were framed against a number of co-defendants to ENCA that were not party to the arbitration agreement. And so if the arbitration agreement was governed by English law, and not Russian law. It was common ground that the tort claims framed in Russia would be caught within the scope of a broadly uh, worded arbitration agreement in accordance with principles that are now familiar to us from Fiona Trust, the one-stop uh, uh, shop type principles. And it's also irrelevant that a number of uh, co-defendants had been impleded in Russia. Uh, that would be irrelevant to the uh, covenant that um, had been made uh, by uh, the main contractor to arbitrate its disputes um, in ICC arbitration in London. It was also common ground that uh, in order to assess the um, uh, governing law of the arbitration agreement, you did not look to Rome 1 uh, uh, convention principles, but the governing law of the arbitration agreement itself was a matter determined in accordance with the common law three-stage test. What divided the parties, and uh, indeed have divided the approach in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, was how to apply that three-stage approach. So the three-stage approach um, is there an express choice of law for the arbitration agreement? Uh, that does sometimes happen. You do sometimes see arbitration clauses which say arbitrate in London or Singapore and so on. 
uh, and then they expressly choose a law to govern the arbitration agreement. But such express choice is relatively rare. Uh, if there is no express choice, is there an implied choice um, to be uh, implied from all the circumstances um, of the parties' um, agreements? And if not, uh, what is the closest connection? Which system of law is most closely connected with the uh, arbitration agreement? Now, the Court of Appeals reasoning was that a choice of seat, a choice of London or England and Wales as the seat, as the juridical seat of the arbitration, would in most cases uh, be treated as an implied choice of law. And that was the Court of Appeals reasoning. And they considered that it was clear, a clear rule. It was simple, easy to apply, and gave proper force to what the Court of Appeal described as the separability, the separable nature of the arbitration agreement. Now, the Supreme Court, and this is where um, it's important to understand, there was a very significant departure between the Supreme Court's reasoning and the Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court didn't agree with this. Uh, the general rule laid down by the Supreme Court was um, different to that of the uh, uh, Court of Appeal, and in contrast to it. The Supreme Court decided that a choice of law to govern the contract as a whole uh, would generally be construed as applying to the arbitration agreement as well. And so that if you can find that there is a choice of law to govern the contract, that uh, in uh, general terms or in most circumstances by way of default rule, that would apply to the arbitration agreement as well. And uh, the Supreme Court concluded that not only was that a clear and certain principle, so exactly the same way that the, the uh, Court of Appeal said that their rule was clear and simple, the Supreme Court also said that their rule was clear and simple, but the Co Supreme Court said, that the uh, uh, underpinning for that conclusion was more conceptually uh, sound. Why so? Because it accorded better with established case law. It accorded better with the uh, a proper understanding of the separable nature of the arbitration agreement. It still formed part of the matrix agreement. It was still one of the uh, terms uh, uh, agreed by the parties. Um, and also of the different function of what uh, Toby described as, as the procedural law and the substantive law, and the substantive law being relevant to questions of validation and scope and so on, uh, whereas the procedural law being focused more on how the arbitration is to be uh, conducted. So the Supreme Court departed in a quite a significant way from the Court of Appeal. Um, and um, in some ways, you can just see this as uh, which end of the telescope do you pick up? Uh, the Court of Appeal said that you start from the perspective of the covenant of arbitration, the separable obligation, and uh, where does that lead you in terms of choice of law? And they said that that was an implied choice. The Supreme Court said, no, you pick up the telescope from the exact other end. You look at the party's uh, matrix contract, if you will, if there is a choice which governs that, generally, that would lead to a, a choice of law for the arbitration agreement. 
if there is no choice of law for the main contract, either express or clearly demonstrated, uh, then the uh, default rule should apply. In the uh, absence of a choice of law, uh, either express or clearly demonstrated, the Supreme Court then uh, went on to decide what the default rule would be under stage three of the common law test. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that is the closest connection test. And the Supreme Court resolved that by saying that in the absence of an express or clearly demonstrated choice, the closest connection would be the law of the seat. That was how the the Supreme Court departed from the Court of Appeal. And in fact, in terms of the ultimate decision, they concluded that there was no express or clearly demonstrated choice of law to govern the main contract. And therefore, they said that the stage three test applied and that the law of the seat applied to the arbitration law. So in conclusion, they reached the same ultimate end point as the Court of Appeal that the arbitration agreement was governed by English law, but for a very different reason. Uh, In other words, it was uh, through the closest connection in the absence of an express choice, as opposed to the choice of seat itself being an implied choice. Now, just before um, I wrap this segment up, why why does any of this matter? Um, It does actually uh, have quite a significant impact. How is the choice of law of the main contract determined? That is not determined under common law principles, but under the Rome 1 regulation, Article 3 of the Rome 1 regulation. Now, although the Supreme Court has said that in many cases, the outcome of an Article 3 determination will be the same as the common law, and the two are very closely allied in terms of the application, there will be many cases, and indeed Enker and Chubb was one, where there was a pretty significant argument as to whether or not uh, you could find either an express or clearly demonstrated choice of Russian law in a contract that Toby rightly described as being extensive in length and in terms of its number of provisions. So uh, if I was um, uh, uh, trying to uh, steer parties in the right direction, um, I would say that Um, One main takeaway of the Supreme Court decision is if you do not have an express choice of law to govern your arbitration agreement, uh, then you have to, uh, in essence, face up to the possibility that there could be some quite complex argument as to what law does govern the arbitration agreement and has there been either an express or clearly demonstrated choice of law in the main contract in which the arbitration agreement is found. And as we know, there was a split in the Supreme Court, 3-2. The minority, Lord Burroughs and Lord Sales, disagreed with the majority both as to the basis on which the main contract was governed by Russian law, but perhaps more importantly, differed in terms of the application of stage three for ascertaining the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Toby, perhaps you can help us with the, uh, the scope of those minority dissents. Yes, um, I'll, I'll happily do so, not, not just because I was acting for Chubb, but, uh, but also because these are very, very interesting dissents uh, in terms of uh, principle and, and policy that, that they canvass. 
Lord Burroughs's judgment, uh, as you say, differed in two core respects, and, and Lord Sales agreed and added his own shorter judgment. Firstly, uh, Lord Burroughs found that Russian law applied to the main construction contract as an implied choice. Uh, that is uh, an Article 3.1 Rome 1 consideration rather than uh, a close connection uh, or default rule. And because he, he found that it was an implied choice, that then meant on that basis, he, he would fall within the majority's main principle, which David has outlined, which is if there is a choice for the main contract, be it express or implied, then absent other considerations, that will ordinarily also govern the arbitration agreement. But secondly, and more fundamentally, uh, Lord Burroughs and Lord Sales agreeing, rejected the idea that there is a default rule in the absence of an implied or an express choice for the main contract that the arbitration agreement would be governed by the law of the seat. There were about eight different reasons that were put forward by Lord Burroughs to say why uh, life would be simpler if we had just one rule rather than two rules. I, I won't go through all of those eight in detail but they rested upon complexity of making this distinction, uh, the over-dependence on the separability doctrine, which he found uh, should not be relied upon in the same way, uh, difficulties with reconciling this with the New York Convention, Article 5.1a, which is interesting because Article 5.1a of the New York Convention was a specific ground that the majority relied upon for their analysis. And ultimately, and perhaps most interestingly, the fact that the majority analysis turns on a very fine distinction in many cases, uh, and that is whether the law governing the main contract is by virtue of an express or implied choice, Article 3 of Rome 1, or closest connection, Article 4, Rome 1. And as David has already mentioned, in many cases, that will not be easy to predict. Uh, there may be many, many different considerations, but on which side of that line the case falls will then determine, according to the majority, the rule that applies to the governing law of the arbitration agreement. Thank you, Toby. Now, there was discussion in the context of applying um, stages one or two to ascertain the governing law of the arbitration agreement, something called the validation principle. David, uh, could you help us with that? So... Uh, what um, this was concerned with is a category of cases where the courts had to um, address this further question. What happens if there is a choice of law in the main contract, but that choice of law would affect the validity or enforceability of the party's arbitration covenant? Do you simply apply the party's uh, choice of law? The parties have said that this contract and all its terms to be governed by such the law of such and such. You simply apply it. Or do you, when construing the party's contract, give effect to the principle that bargains are supposed to be construed to be upheld rather than uh, to uh, be nullified? And... Um, the, this has given rise to what has been described as the validation principle. 
even where parties have made an express choice of law in the main contract, that may not apply to govern the arbitration agreement or the law governing the arbitration agreement if the effect of that would be to either invalidate or nullify the effect of the um, arbitration agreement itself. Now, that was the position in uh, essentially Sul America and the Court of Appeal. And also it was a, a ground uh, for the decision in Excel and Owens Corning. And so um, I think the takeaway here is as follows, that there is going to be a category of cases, even where um, the parties have made an express choice of law to govern the main contract, that may not follow the general rule as applied to the arbitration agreement if the effect of that would be to either invalidate or nullify the arbitration agreement itself. Now, why was that relevant for discussion? There was some discussion, although no determination by the Supreme Court, um, that that would have been the effect of applying Russian law um, uh, it, to the arbitration agreement in the end, current Chubb matter. They didn't come to any conclusion on that, but they said that the validation principle was sound uh, and should be applied. Uh, now, the last thing I probably would say about this is that um, that I think in future, uh, parties are going to need to give more consideration to the uh, express choice of a governing law for the arbitration agreement itself. Because uh, if it is left to the uh, general principle or default principle that we've outlined already, there could be some nasty surprises further down the line. And much better to avoid this with an express choice of law than reliance on some of the principles that we've been outlining. Uh, because, uh, of course, there will be room for reasonable disagreement between experts under foreign law as to whether indeed an agreement would be either nullified or invalidated under a foreign law. Just to add to what David has said, I think there is another layer of uncertainty uh, arising out of the Supreme Court's judgment on this principle. The Supreme Court recognised that the validation principle, which dates back to about the 1600s, is a form of purposive interpretation and that its strength will vary from case to case, depending on the particular risk or certainty of invalidity. What they said was that the degree of impairment that is necessary in order to trigger this principle can't be stated in the absolute abstract. It's got to be just on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and the Supreme Court said that they could do no better than what Lord Justice Morbick had said in Sul America, which is that commercial parties are generally unlikely to have intended a choice of governing law for a contract to apply to an arbitration agreement if there is at least a serious risk that a choice would significantly undermine that agreement. Now, that's all the guidance we have. What does it mean, significantly undermine that agreement? Does that mean render it invalid? Does it mean change its nature or limit its scope? In the minority, Lord Burroughs was very clear that he did not consider that the validation principle would apply to a question of scope as opposed to a question of validity. But we don't get that clarity, I think, from the majority. And so this may well be a territory for argument in future cases. 
if I could just add one thing, I, I completely agree with Toby that, that there is room for uncertainty in the way the uh, principle was stated by Lord Justice Morbick and restated by the Supreme Court, particularly in the question of scope. So there was some debate in the Supreme Court as to whether or not you would have a significant impairment of the choice of arbitration if you applied Russian law, where there was some evidence that uh, a choice of Russian law would be um, significantly ineffective to uh, force Chubb to arbitrate what might be described as multi-party delictual claims. Now, there is no obvious answer to that. I mean, one side could say, well, there is an impairment because you're bound by the contract and we'd like to arbitrate with you if that's okay. And another party could say, well, there isn't any impairment because if you have a a contractual claim within the scope of the arbitration agreement, no problem, we arbitrate. But uh, multi-party delictual claims uh, in accordance with Russian law principles are litigated and not arbitrated. So, um, one man's impairment could easily be another person's uh, general right uh, to have access to courts. Uh, I think that um, there is scope for further uh, clarity uh, as to what is meant by the validation principle. Toby, what are the consequences uh, under the Supreme Court decision for where parties have chosen a foreign law to govern the arbitration agreement? So one of the core issues that was debated before the Supreme Court in the context of assessing the Court of Appeals approach was the impact and proper interpretation of Section 4.5 of the English Arbitration Act 1996. So I just need to back up a little bit to give some context to this. As David had mentioned earlier, the Court of Appeal had held that there is a general rule whereby the choice of seat will give rise to the law governing the arbitration agreement. One of the reasons the Court of Appeal gave for that was what they said was an overlap between matters governed by the curial law and matters governed by the law governing the arbitration agreement. The two are closely intertwined and it's difficult to separate them. That overlap argument took centre stage before the Supreme Court and it was challenged on the basis of Section 4.5 of the English Arbitration Act. Section 4.5 had not actually been cited in the lower courts and was not considered by the Court of Appeal. Section 4.5 of the English Act uh, is part of the regime that distinguishes between what are mandatory and non-mandatory provisions. So the English Act comprises a number of provisions that will apply come what may, and there are a larger number of provisions that will only apply if the parties have not made other arrangements. And one way that the Act allows parties to make other arrangements is by a choice of a law other than the law of England and Wales, or Northern Ireland if it's a Northern Ireland case. So Section 4.5 says, and I'll just read it, the choice of a law other than the law of England and Wales as the applicable law in respect of a matter provided for by a non-mandatory provision of this part is equivalent to an agreement making provision about that matter. And then it goes on to say, this will apply even if the governing law governs because of the objective application of the conflicts rules, even if there's been no express or implied choice. So in short, if a foreign law applies to any element in the arbitration 
that is the subject of a non-mandatory provision of the Act, that non-mandatory provision will be displaced. It will be contracted out of. So Section 4.5 was an answer to the overlap argument that had persuaded the Court of Appeal. It meant that actually there isn't an overlap or no significant overlap, because if you choose a different law to govern the arbitration agreement from the curial law, then that will take precedence. That will displace provisions of the curial law that would otherwise apply. This is a provision that has not actually uh, attracted much attention over the years. That it, it was a subject of um, uh, consideration in the Lesotho Impregilo case in the House of Lords in 2005, although the section itself wasn't actually quoted in terms uh, by, um, uh, by the court. But the, the effect of this is that if a foreign law applies, uh, even if you, don't, you haven't actually chosen it yourself, it's just applying because of the normal application of conflicts rules, you may find to your surprise that there are portions and possibly significant portions of the Arbitration Act that will no longer apply to your case. If I could just add a, a few uh, words to that, and um, first of all, just to, in, in agreement with what Toby was saying, that um, as the Supreme Court um, decided that uh, its uh, construction of the effect of Section 4.5 was um, more or less a complete answer to what uh, we in Anchor put forward as the overlap argument. Um, but uh, just to underscore and re-emphasize, um, the decision of the Supreme Court uh, in fact, creates its own potential problems and significant surprise. Uh, of course, um, the argument was put forward that Section 4.5 was uh, put in the Act as a very significant reinforcement of the principle of party autonomy, that parties are free to agree whatever law they want to uh, govern their arbitration, and there should only be the minimum mandatory control um, uh, uh, of uh, that process. But um, my um, advice and takeaway is careful what you wish for or agree upon. Uh, I do not think that there would be many parties to international arbitration uh, who would be thinking that if they have, let's say, put um, the, in a contract, the uh, contract is to be governed by the law of X, uh, London arbitration, uh, that they would be looking to the law of X uh, for uh, all manner of uh, provisions uh, which would be relevant to the arbitration process itself, except for those which are mandatorily specified in uh, Section 1 of the Arbitration Act. So the answer to this, um, I think, is going to be that parties are going to have to give much more thought as to the arbitration agreement itself. Now, there are two potential answers. The first is that if you um, arbitrate under the LCIA rules, there is a default provision that your arbitration agreement itself will be governed uh, by English law. Now, that is, um, I think, quite an important provision in the LCI rules and will protect you against any kind of, um, shall we say, um, surprise that you'd be looking to um, uh, the law of another state for certain aspects uh, governing the arbitration itself. And the only other uh, solution that I can put forward is the one I mentioned at the top of this podcast, um, that I would recommend parties now start giving thought to making an express provision for governing law of the arbitration agreement. Just, just one word of comfort. There may be concern that Section 4.5 uh, 
is, is going to sort of now, now it's focused upon, is going to have some revolutionary uh, surprise effect. Actually, its effect is not as radical as it may sound at first, because there's an exercise of characterization that has to be done. If you choose a foreign law to govern your contract, you're not then choosing that foreign law to do anything other than regulate the contractual rights and obligations. You're not choosing it as an arbitration curial law. You can choose it as a curial law, but if you haven't done so, then you will not thereby displace provisions of the act that actually are concerned with the curial law. And equally, if you've not chosen it for uh, to govern the arbitration agreement, then you will not displace provisions in the act that concern the arbitration agreement. So this exercise of characterization was recognized by the Supreme Court. There is no definitive statement as to what provision in the Arbitration Act is curial law concerned or arbitration agreement concerned or something else. But it is an exercise that would be done on a case by case basis. So the, the idea behind this is you will only displace provisions of the Arbitration Act insofar as you have chosen a law to govern that particular subject matter. Well, that's a lot to take away on governing law. Let's move to the other issue in the case and very much subsidiary in the context of what we've just discussed. And that is the role of the English courts in granting anti-suit relief to enforce arbitration agreements, whether or not they are in fact governed by English law. The principles uh, engaged in terms of uh, the availability of anti-suit injunction relief uh, in Enker and Chubb were only discussed uh, in a few short paragraphs um, at the very end of the majority judgment. Um, the, there was a very short point that had been raised, which concerns a, a well-known and well-loved case of the angelic grace in the Court of Appeal. It was suggested uh, by Chubb that um, the availability of anti-suit injunction relief would predominantly be available only if that you could show a clear breach of an obligation to arbitrate governed by English law. It was not said that there would never be a circumstance where you could restrain uh, the pursuit of uh, proceedings in breach of an arbitration agreement governed by a foreign law, but it was argued that uh, it would be uh, an entirely exceptional case uh, for such relief to be granted. The Supreme Court didn't agree and um, in essence uh, concluded that the uh, anti-suit relief under this head was uh, available to restrain a clear breach of a contractual obligation. And it, for that purpose, it didn't matter whether the clear breach was an obligation under a foreign law or a foreign law arbitration agreement or an English law arbitration agreement. The question was, has have you been able to establish to a sufficient degree of certainty a clear breach? And that just because the arbitration agreement uh, would be governed by a foreign law did not mean that suddenly you were engaged in an entirely different set of principles of comity or uh, a reliance on the foreign court to stay its proceedings pursuant to Article 2.3 of the New York Convention One still approached on the basis of the angelic grace principles that if a clear breach had been demonstrated, uh, you would provide the anti-suit relief without uh, diffidence. The um, commentary I would make on this is uh, simply as follows. If, uh, however, you are dealing with uh, the breach of an arbitration agreement governed by a foreign law, 
and not under English law, then clearly there will be evidential questions that have to be addressed by the parties either applying or resisting the um, anti-suit relief. Because as we know, um, there are many cases where two uh, rival experts uh, reach opposing views as to whether or not something is or is not a breach of a foreign law arbitration agreement. And it may be harder in practical terms, not conceptual terms, but in practical terms, to establish a clear breach. What would have happened in this case if the uh, Supreme Court had decided uh, that the arbitration agreement was governed by Russian law and not English law is that they would have um, shunted the matter back off to the commercial court for a determination as to whether under Russian law there was or there was not a breach. I entirely agree with uh, what David has said and, and the consequences of it, but I just, just perhaps mention that the discussion in the Supreme Court on the anti-suit injunction was all obiter because they had determined that the arbitration agreement is governed by English law, and it was common ground that if it wasn't Russian law, then this issue didn't arise. But it is interesting that the Supreme Court nevertheless went ahead and commented on this point, uh, both the majority and also the minority, with what was a very firm recognition and endorsement of the much-loved anti-suit injunction jurisdiction in England. Uh, citing Lord Hoffman in West Tankers, they recognised again that this is a vitally important element in the English court's supervisory powers over arbitration. Uh, it is a, a reason why many people actually choose uh, English seated arbitration. And, um, and given that, the choice of law question uh, didn't undermine or narrow the jurisdiction in any way. So whether it's English law or foreign law, the English court stands absolutely ready to step in uh, if one can prove a breach of the arbitration agreement. Well, thank you to both David and Toby for that insightful discussion about the recent Supreme Court decision in Anchor and Chubb. And indeed, thank you to everyone who's taken part in this podcast series. I've been fortunate enough to be joined by members of Chambers discussing a wide range of cases that have all taken place over the last decade or so. We've covered as part of that, I think a total of eight Supreme Courts, including one House of Lords. And indeed, there's a further one in the pipeline now as a result of the, the so-called FCA test case going to the Supreme Court on an expedited basis. And we're going to have podcast episode eight at some point next year, I'm told. In some ways, we've gone full circle because we finished the podcast series today discussing issues of conflicts of laws or private international law in the arbitration context. And we started the series with the Supreme Court decision of Taurus way back when, what feels like a year ago, uh, with Graham Dunning and Sid Dar. In between, we've discussed things like the Brexit, judicial reviews, the anatomy of dividends in company law in VAT and Sakana, and many other things. I'm grateful to everyone who's joined me. It's been fascinating. It's been an education for me. And I'd like to say a real net pleasure. We'll be announcing details for a further series of podcasts at some point in the new year. Thank you for everybody who has sent feedback on this podcast series. It's hugely appreciated. Please do keep sending in feedback if you can. And of course, if you have an anti-suit injunction instruction, please feel free to send it too.